welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. One of my heroes is Irvin Yalom, a psychiatrist and writer. His book so inspired me in my early years of learning to become a psychiatrist. Today's story concept was sparked by Yalom's book called Every Day Gets a Little Closer, A Twice-Told Therapy. To create this book, Yalom asked one of his long-term patients to keep a weekly diary of their therapy sessions, and he did the same. And then he wove their two very different but fascinating perspectives together to write the book. I just love this idea, and I thought it would be really cool to do the Back from the Abyss version of this. So today, in this story, Dr. Erin Jacklin, a psychologist in Denver, and her 15-year client Sherlock tell their shared story. With Erin first meeting Sherlock at the very beginning of her doctoral training, and Sherlock coming to Erin at a pivotal point in his life. To create this episode, I asked Aaron and Sherlock to not discuss their treatment history or what they might say during the recording. And then I recorded Aaron and Sherlock separately, asking them each the same questions. And then this magic unfolded. I'm as excited for the release of this episode as anyone we've ever done. I hope you too find meaning and beauty in their story. And before we begin, just a reminder, two ways you can help Back from the Abyss. Number one, write us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen on. And number two, share your favorite episode or an episode that really touched you with friends, family, colleagues. And that's the way we spread the word, I think, person by person, story by story. And as always, we're very happy to hear your comments, questions, and suggestions. You can reach out to me through my website, craigheacockmd.com. My mother was just barely 16 when I was born, and I was born early. And that set the stage for things to come in the future. Because I was so sick when I was born, she signed away parental rights to me, to my grandparents, that they could cover me on their insurance. So I grew up between her and my grandparents, at least until I was about five. And when I was five, I had a babysitter accuse my mother of sexually abusing me. Um, Because of that, I ended up living with my grandparents. They became my legal physical guardians. Um, But also during that time, I was put into court-mandated therapy. And at first, you know, it was okay. She had great toys, the therapist did. And that was all well and good. But then it became more about talking about my feelings. And for me at that age, that was that was not something that I really did because when I was three, my, my stepfather at the time literally beat the crap out of me for crying because I missed my mom and told me that the only time you cry is if something is broken or something is bleeding. And, and feelings, you, you weren't allowed to talk about those. And so I didn't want to talk to her. And I was very resistant and was continuously, you know, forced to go and at least sit there. And and she kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And finally, they let me stop going to therapy, which for me was a victory. And then when I was about 10, I was placed into court-mandated therapy again because someone had molested my youngest sister and they believed that it was me. So to, one, address that in hopes of of getting me to admit that, you know, I had been the one to molest my sister and to kind of check where my mind was at, they put me back in therapy with the same therapist. I think it's, at least in my mind, important to say that I did not molest my sister um, and I did not want to talk to that therapist again and ended up actually refusing to go after the sixth appointment. I told them I would not go, and if they forced me, I would just sit there silently. Your first two experiences with therapy were when you were a little, little child, and then mandated, court mandated. It's not like you said, I want help, I want someone to talk to, I need some support. You were forced to go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was... She just didn't, didn't understand me at all. I understand that, you know, she was trying to do her job, but when I would do things to avoid talking to her, like bring 
Star Trek figurines, for example, so that I could play with them and, you know, be in my own little space. Um, she took that instead to mean that I couldn't differentiate between fantasy and reality. Um, when really I just didn't want to talk to her and was far more interested in playing with my Star Trek figurines. Mm. And then after that, you know, things were, were pretty normal. I mean, <laughs> as normal as they can be for someone raised by their grandparents, right? And then when I was 12, which, you know, when you think back, 10 to 12 doesn't seem like that far from this point, but, you know, when you're living it, it, it seems like forever. I was sexually abused by a parishioner in the church that we were part of, and I told my story. And I told someone. And they didn't believe me at first until I got the parishioner's daughter to admit that he was also sexually abusing her. And that went to court. And, you know, the the justice system stepped in at that point. Um, less than a year later, a different parishioner, um, I'd been spending the night at their house um, hanging out with their kids because we were all friends. He came in to the room I was sleeping in and molested me. Um, I remember the smell of alcohol in his breath was extremely obvious. And I told again. And again, they didn't believe me. They, they convinced me that it was a dream, that really I, I had fallen asleep and I dreamt the whole thing. Um, probably seven years later, I would say, it came back to me that he had been accused and, and evidence had been found that he had been molesting special needs children at his job. But after the abuse situations and, and they had convinced me that it was all a dream, they decided that I should go to therapy. And I was actually kind of excited about it because I'd been struggling with depression and my sexuality and my gender identity. And I decided, okay, let's, let's give this a shot. Um, and so they found a therapist and she was an older woman, um, very nice, but also from a religious background and not one that I think was necessarily friendly towards GLBTQI plus people. So me struggling with my sexuality and my gender identity on top of depression and, and everything else as much as she tried her best, the connection just wasn't there. And when I was ready to just say, you know what, I, this isn't working, um, my family was like, no, you need to keep going. Um, and it wasn't until I was 18 that I finally was like, nope, we're done. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm putting a stop to it. It's, it's not working. And then... It came time for me to be in a space where I was ready to transition. And actually, I started a zoology class at Metro. And I was in a place where I was like, yep, I'm going to transition socially. And I'm going to be out in all my classes. And it's going to be great. And I walked into this class and we got split up into groups for some group work. And I ended up getting paired with this gentleman. And... I said, so here's the story. I'm preoperative female to male transgender. And really that means nothing to you except for I would rather you use male pronouns. And he looked at me and said, you know, it's really nice to meet you. I am post-operative female to male transgender. How mm. can I help you? Wow. Um, That's amazing. And so he's the one that gave me the, the information to the PPU. Um, which is where I met Aaron.
So I started working with Sherlock in my third year of graduate training. So I was a pretty green therapist. Um, and he came in for, uh, he basically, he came in announcing that he did not need to be in therapy, that he was being forced to be there against his will, and that he hated every moment of being in the room with me. <laughs> and I was an obstacle to him getting what he wanted, uh, which was to get a letter to do uh, transition. So you're coming to your first session with Aaron with the history of at least three pretty negative therapy experiences. Yeah. You had two mandated as a little person and then as an adolescent, as you said, you were willing to go, but it, you didn't get what you needed. Right. Yeah. So tell me, why did you then voluntarily go back into therapy with, with Aaron? And, and Yen, what do you remember about that first session and early impressions? I was willing to go back because that's what I needed to do to get letters so that I could start hormones and eventually, you know, have surgeries and all of that. But it, it still felt kind of forced, if I'm honest. Um, like this was something that I had to do to get what I needed to do what I needed. And I'll tell you, I, I remember the first thing I said to Aaron was, I don't know you, I don't trust you, I don't want to be here, but I'm here because I have to be. And I remember, I think, more the feelings that I was having. I was, I was mad because I was being forced to be there, and I was honestly scared that she would talk to me and she would realize that secretly I'm crazy. Mm, yeah. I know it was a long time ago, but do you remember anything about how you felt? Or I could see where as a brand new sort of therapy intern like you're excited to get your new people and Sherlock shows up and basically says hey um, therapy's terrible I've been forced to go I don't want to be here I'm only here for you to sign off on my plan yes and I know everything more than you (laughs) (laughs) perfect yeah so I was uh, I would say like wicked intimidated Um, I think it's really normal at that phase. And I had it probably more than most to have just like a really strong imposter syndrome and feel like your clients could see through you and see that you really didn't know what the fuck you were doing. And I felt that um, really strongly in that first session in particular, and really in the first year of our work together, (laughs) it was a lot of that. Um, And we were in a weird dynamic, which I'd never been in before. Uh, I'd never seen someone who had was forced to be there. I'd always seen people who were choosing it. And that was my first experience of being sort of put in this role um, where I was both trying to offer help and also in some ways kind of like a problem for somebody. Um, And also I was in this dynamic where I needed him to show up eight times for it to count. (laughs) You needed needed your boxes checked too. I needed a box checked too. (laughs) Please come back. I need eight sessions. What am I going to tell my supervisor? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So I could feel it in the room. I was like, well, there's no way in hell this guy's coming eight times. So I might as well just like (laughs) try my best. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like Aaron's biggest biggest challenge at the beginning, the early weeks, months, was to establish trust. And I'm wondering, yeah, how did she do this, and how long did that take to develop? So, she earned trust in in the same kind of way that that you would with a wounded animal. She was very slow and deliberate in her actions and her words and her movements and she would ease me into things and conversations. She would kind of let me take the lead there. And when we would get close to things and I would jump back and, you know, go back into hiding, so to speak, metaphorically, she was, she wouldn't chase, you know, she would kind of like, okay, okay. And let me kind of come back out as my, on my own. I can't tell you like, you know, she earned my trust on November 5th, you know, 2009 or something like that but if i if i had to guess i would say it was probably three years before i stopped being 
so guarded about what I would say mm-hmm. to her in terms of, of what I was feeling and thinking truthfully and, and would hide less behind anger. Mm-hmm. Um, anger was my best friend at that point in time. And I'm wondering how you tried to establish trust and, and get some buy-in. Yeah. So I think um, initially, you know, I was still, I feel like at that point in training, you're still largely just trying to be a human in the room <laughs> as much as anything. Um, and so trying to balance sort of pushing and supporting, I think was a huge piece um, that I learned a lot with him, um, where, you know, if I, Sherlock is, is in the, especially in the early years, was a client where if you went too fast, too hard, it would just blow up in all these different ways. Um, he would get really enraged or really defensive and um, do a lot of stuff to kind of put me in my place. Um, I mean, I, he and I joke about this now, but he used to like correct my vocabulary. Hmm. If I used a word slightly wrong, <laughs> he would say things like, I don't think you really understand what that word means. Um, so it was this balance of like, Needing, I needed as a clinician to learn to own my own authority a little bit. Um, and as a client, he was somebody who was going to push against that every time I tried to have any power in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, in the room, I had all this power because he needed this thing from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't give it to him until my supervisor agreed. <laughs> so we were both in kind of this funny bind. Yeah. So a lot of it, I think, was trying to be uh, the way I was trained and the way I still work is very relationally focused. So really trying to like be in the moment and be in the relationship with him and let him have whatever reactions he was going to have and not kind of escalate with him, which was, I now know an incredibly different experience Mm -hmm. than what he has had in other um, interactions, especially other interactions with authority figures. Mm-hmm. So having me being in an authority role and then trying as best as I could, even though inside I did not feel very calm, <laughs> trying outside <laughs> to mm-hmm. stay calm and and rather than reacting, trying the piece um, he and I worked a lot on and I learned a lot through our work together was really trying to just like bring curiosity to any situation. So when he would be get really enraged at me because I had pushed too far or asked a question he didn't want to answer or tried, God forbid, to ask him about his childhood, um, because that's not what we're here to talk about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, He would get really frustrated with me and then trying to just get soft and curious, both about what I was trying to learn, but also about why, like, uh, you know, I wonder why he's reacting this way Mm -hmm. um, and what's this really about. One of the best pieces of advice I got in those early days was from my supervisor who said, I need you to start watching what he does instead of what he says, because he would say all these things about how he didn't want to be here and how I didn't know what I was doing and how, you know, he could do everything better than me. And yet he showed up regularly every week. He wasn't late. He didn't cancel. He was coming. Uh, And, and like flirting with participating in therapy. (laughs) (laughs) And, and that helped me to yeah. just say, okay, I'm going to just, you maybe just need to posture and say all this to me, but I'm going to stop taking it so personally and thinking it has anything to do with me because it, I don't think it actually had a lot to do with me. Um, and just start watching what you're doing, which mm-hmm. is you are coming and you are slowly but surely starting to talk a little bit more about, you know, little bits about his life, little bits, you know well, we're stuck here anyway. That was the other thing I did that finally worked. It's like, well, we're stuck here together anyway. Why don't we just make the best of it? You know, let's not, we can sit here in silence until we've hit our, you know, certain number of of weeks or months that you're supposed to be living in your chosen, you know, gender and a certain number of weeks secretly that I need you to show Mm -hmm. up. But why don't we just try and do something with this? Do you remember some of Aaron's early successes or even early mistakes in the, you know in those beginning weeks and months? So as I said, anger was was such a big part of my life at that time. And 
I would do a lot of posturing, um, try to make myself look big and, and sound big and sound scary and, and intimidating. And I'm, you know, this big, impressive guy and, and, you know, you're in my way and you're just going to do what I want. And sometimes I would rage against, you know, I have to be here and I don't want to be here and this is stupid. But she would sit there so calm and just, if I needed to be a thunderstorm and bluster and, and just go off, it was like, she'd sit there in that storm not afraid to get struck by the lightning you know and and that was really important because not only did she just keep calm and let me bluster she wouldn't buy into it either it it wasn't it wasn't like oh I'm so scared you're so intimidating or you're so powerful you're so strong or, or anything else that I was trying to position myself as I also tend to rely on sexual prowess as a means for trying to appear masculine and and big and powerful and um it was it was part of my armor so to speak and she she never played into it it was she was always just very calm and you know when I would go on and on about yes I'm so impressive and so manly it was right yes absolutely and this other thing that we were just talking about Let's continue talking about that. So she wouldn't let me escape from the work necessarily, but she would also let me retreat if I needed to, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I could think of in terms of, of like mistakes is she would often <laughs> truthfully make me angry. <laughs> um, but as I said, I mean, everything made me angry at that time. She... She absolutely would hold my feet to the fire and, and question me and challenge me. And at that time, I hated that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, how dare you? I absolutely know more than you do about everything. But that was so important looking back at it. Sherlock, as his pseudonym kind of implies, is wicked smart and an autodidact, has learned about anything he's ever curious about. He's just like, oh, I want to learn about that. I'll just go deep dive into, you know, I mean like marine animals or how to code or how to, you know, medicine or, you know, just anything. Um, and I, I felt really, um, I think for a while I sort of played into that and tried to like keep up with him and show him that I was just as smart and I could, you know, and that just feeds it and makes it worse. You know, mm. <laughs> it's like, we're not, then we could be, end up in a pissing contest, <laughs> um, which is not awesome in the therapy room. <laughs> yeah. But I think it happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah, right. I think yeah. unconsciously that gets co-created with therapists and clients a lot. Yeah. And and there's this other layer during the years when I was in training where those sessions are all being recorded and watched by my supervisor. So I would also feel like I had to kind of perform in a certain way. And when he was schooling me or kind of, you know, putting me uh, in my place is what it would feel like. I would sometimes feel this like desire to like, well, I need to show that I actually know something about mental health. And so I'm going to like rattle off some facts. <laughs> like, well, did you know that actually depression is caused by, you know. Colorado is the third highest <laughs> rate of suicide. Yes, exactly. Did you know that? Yeah. And, and shockingly, he'd be like, well, yes, I did. And did you also know? Here's the footnote for that. Oh, no. So that was, I think, a long-standing mistake of mm-hmm. just playing the game with him. And kind of getting of, pulled into intellectualization. Yes. Kind of yes. out of feelings and into the kind of life of the mind, yes. the cognitive mind. Absolutely, yeah. which is, frankly, a tendency of mine with or without somebody playing the game with me. So mm-hmm. it was, mm-hmm. um, you know, our he and I have joked like sort of some of our uh, things we both needed to learn lined up really well. So the <laughs> yeah. universe put us together yeah. for a reason. <laughs> That's good. Um, but yeah, I think that was part of it is learning. A big, a big mistake was just playing, you know, playing into the, that relational dynamic and acting it out with him and what shifted and got better was when I could start observing it and naming it when it was happening. Even if I was still doing it, I was like, Oh, Hey, it looks like we're doing that thing again where we're both just like intellectualizing and talking about really heady stuff. And we kind of like lost, like, this doesn't seem like therapy right now. This seems Mm -hmm. like really interesting conversation. But Mm -hmm. um, the other piece that would happen a lot that I played into for a long time is he is an incredible storyteller as you probably mm-hmm. know. And, but it serves this function of distancing. So sometimes when he really didn't want to talk about real stuff, he would come in and tell me this 
elaborate, beautifully told story about something that had happened. Um, so he's like, I'm telling you, you know, and I would challenge, he's like, I'm telling you, I'm telling you about my real life. <laughs> and it took a while for me to even be able to name what was happening and to be able to comment on there's something feels really different between us. Mm. When you're doing that, it feels like a performance and like I'm your audience. And there's something different happens when, you know, we get curious together about what's underneath the story or what was, what, you know, what are you feeling right now, right here, right now, as we're talking about this. And that took a long time. It took a long time for me to realize that's what was happening because for a while I was like, we're doing great therapy. He's talking <laughs> about all this stuff. I'm making these insightful comments. <laughs> <laughs> and then after a while I realized there's this whole other dynamic going on and that that's when we could really deep, deep in the work is when we were able to n- see that pattern and name it and then start to slowly disrupt it. Mm-hmm. Even just by calling it out and be like, Hey, you're doing that storytelling thing again. And I'm an audience member again. He'd be like, Oh shit. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Aaron, in the course of the therapy, ever really deeply let you down. Sounds like, sounds like she challenged you, she pushed you. There were times you wanted to flee. But were there times where you think, looking back, that she really dropped the ball, she made a mistake, there was sort of a empathic wound, or um, in some way she inadvertently, maybe you know, unconsciously hurt you? I don't think so. I think the closest that we could come to something like that would be when she graduated. Um, She had to find another student that could take over my case when she graduated. And she'd found someone that she thought would be a great match. And it really wasn't. She, she being the, the other student, asked me if I wanted her to read my file or if you know, she wanted, I wanted her to, to explore things with me and, and I'd ask her to read my file to get kind of caught up and then we would kind of rehash things as needed. And she never did that. And, um, she, well, she picked and, and read some pieces of it, but never really got the full story. And I don't remember what it was, but she said something that made me angry and I got a little loud and she looked at me and said, and that's why Aaron's afraid of you. Oh, and I never went back after that. Hmm. And did you ever ask Erin about that? I did. If she was afraid of you, I did. So, to give you some kind of context, it was probably a year, maybe a little more than a year, from when Erin graduated to when I found her again. But when I did, that was one of the questions that I had. And I said, "You know, this is what happened." you know, is this true? Were you afraid of me? And she said, no, I I was never afraid of you. I was afraid for you. You know, that made perfect sense. You know, I was so angry. I was hitting things, not in her office, obviously, but, you know, I would come in with hands bandaged because something made me angry and I punched a wall or the freezer or the side of the garage and had broken my hand or, or the fingers or damaged myself in some way. You know, I think that that fear for me was was genuine and you know I think looking back at it I would understand now if she had actually been afraid of me in the moment though it was interesting like no matter how hard she pushed even if I was angry at her it never once crossed my mind to lash out um at least absolutely not physically I might have blustered and gotten loud but like I can't imagine ever coming to a place where I was like wanted to get physical with her you know it's it's interesting that you ask about potential empathic failures or or letdowns like that and I think the opposite is true for Erin I think she's always been so mindful and cautious about my feelings and about you know how I would take things like when she graduated she was like you know it's 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 okay if you're angry that I'm graduating and going to be away. It's, it's okay. However you're feeling about this. And 
you know, when, when she's gone on maternity leave or, or had times where she was away, it's always been the same. You know, I understand if you're angry and I understand if you're upset, you know, let's talk about this and prepare to work through this. And, you know, most of those times I've, I've been very happy for her. Right? Mm-hmm. I was happy she was graduating and I was, was happy that you know, she was having her kids. And, you know, so that, that wasn't really a concern, but she's always just been so mindful and, and so cautious about how I feel about things. Yeah. What a gift. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like there are any times that you actually really let Sherlock down? Because I think you pointed out some sort of uh, technique mistakes falling into intellectualization or, or you know, allowing him to story tell. But w- were there times where you feel like, you know, consciously or unconsciously, that you, yeah, you really let him down or even wounded him or hurt him? Not not because you meant to, but in retrospect, you know, because you work with someone long enough, that can easily happen. Yeah. I think and I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're asking about, but I feel like the places when I have felt like I really fucked up with him are when I've had to leave and it's felt like an abandonment. When, you know, we had the first time I thought was going to go great. He was in a really great place. We'd worked together for a couple years in graduate training and I was finishing to go off on internship. And I set him up with what I thought was just a phenomenal transfer therapist of somebody who I knew well. And I thought, you know, was pretty similar in the way they worked to me. And that went terribly, (laughs) which I didn't know because we, you know, didn't have any contact. Um, uh, And then, and, you know, and then he ended up finding me uh, once I was out of school and in private practice and told me the whole story about how badly things had gone. So that was one where I felt like I had like really let him down and he really needed me to set him up with somebody one of the things by the two years into therapy, things were finally going pretty well when I was leaving. And he um, he would never call therapy therapy. He would only call it errand time. He was like, no, I don't go to therapy. See, so any other therapist was doomed to fail. <laughs> yes, exactly. Unless uh, named Aaron. Yeah, yeah. So, so I felt like this intense pressure that I didn't realize at the time was, you know, it plays right into your... Um, greatest hopes and deepest fears right that Mm -hmm. you are the only one Mm -hmm. who can help Mm -hmm. and you know and and in reality that isn't true it's you know much more complicated than that and it it happened several times to us so we had that one um and then this is fast forwarding a little bit but in later years i've had you know four children over the course of so we met we were both in our you know mid early mid 20s you know early in in life and then over the course of our work together you know we both moved on, you know, moved on in life and I've gotten married and had four children. And so every time I've gone out on leave, um, especially a few of the times he's really decompensated and Mm. things have gone really poorly. And I have felt so, and even in the, I think there's a lot of rich kind of transference and countertransference during pregnancy, actually, Mm -hmm. that nobody ever talks about. Mm -hmm. Um, but we've had a lot of times where I've felt a lot of times like a parent to him, and then I'm sort of replacing him with this real baby that mm. I'm growing inside of me, and then I'm leaving him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I feel like in the, especially the first couple times, I didn't, I felt uncomfortable about that, and I didn't really talk about, like I didn't make space, you know, I would say the like, we can talk about whatever's coming up for you around my pregnancy, but I was also kind of subtly communicating, I don't really, you can, you're fine, mm-hmm. uh, we're fine, everything's great, this is going to be wonderful. And I think it did stir a lot up, and it is hard um, to watch that happen and to be and to have somebody leave and not know when you know when they're going to come back. What were some of the primary therapy challenges or things you worked on in terms of transitioning? Yeah. So um, Sherlock came in with a very kind of, um, I think, rigid and sort of hyper-masculine vision of what it means to be a man and sort of what he had to, like, prove to me for me to give him this stupid letter um, that was this, like, you know, 
chain around both of our necks for a long time. (laughs) Um, And a lot of our work together was about lots of other things, right? It was about his childhood, it was about trauma, it was about, you know, his own sort of self-concept, relationships. And yet there was this kind of through line of, um, you know, what does it mean? question we would come back to a lot is what does it mean to be a man? Um, and he at some point, this is so classically like how he approaches things, at some point he was like, I'm going to do a research project on masculinity. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, of course you are. <laughs> and he, but it was beautiful. I think it was really a turning point in a lot of ways. Um, because he went and we worked on this some together and he did some of this on his own as we went through all of his kind of ideas of what it is to be a man. He's like, I Googled what is a man? And these are all the things that came up. And then I went through all my own perceptions of what that is and asked other people. So he put together this whole document and then went through and was like, now let me look at real humans in my life, you know, and his, um, father, her father figure was a beautiful kind of example of who he wanted to be as a man. And he's like, but he's not all these things. He's not this like hyper-masculine, super macho guy. He's actually a lot more complex than that. And other men I know that I respect are too. And so we started just like, you know, slowly challenging the stereotype of who he needed to be and that he could be a man and also have softness and also have vulnerability and not have to be incredibly smart all the time and and invulnerable all the time and the most like incredible sexual prowess all the time um and have be able to fix anybody's truck be able to fix anything you know any mechanical thing there was a lot of stuff there that was so um for a long time he thought was who he was and over time we learned oh this is you know some of this stuff is who you are like you totally love working on your truck and you actually really like like all these other things and have this soft creative side and have this really tender heart for people and that that's all part of being a man. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a ton of it. You know, it wasn't so much the logistics. That was sort of like a hoop we had to jump through, mm-hmm. but it was much more about identity and figuring out. Like, what does it mean? Yeah, what yeah. does it mean? Which yeah. is actually a thing like I wish more people who, you know, are cis males would do too. It's mm-hmm. like, let's get curious about what is, and, you know, and, and I'm trying women to get curious. Too. I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> like just trying to get a little more curious about what does mm-hmm. it mean to be a man and mm-hmm. why do you think it is this thing? Mm-hmm. You know, who gave that to you? That was another question we would ask. Like, who gave you that? Like, who gave you that idea? And then I would sometimes share, I was like, oh, that, that doesn't ring as particularly, you know, true to me. Here's, you know, here's another example of, of what it could look like. And, and that was a really cool kind of collaborative process that slowly got, it felt like another thing I think about a lot with him is that when we started, everybody was like a two-dimensional character. I was like an object that was an obstacle that he needed to control or manipulate to give him what he wanted. And he saw himself as a two-dimensional like figure, like a cartoon version of a man. Um, mm. And as we work together, I feel like he sees people in 3D. And he sees himself, he's much more of a richly drawn human um, that that lets masculinity be a complex, you know, multifaceted part of him rather than sort of this, like, armor he puts on mm-hmm. or this facade. What would you say you've learned about yourself in this long course of therapy with Aaron? As cliche as this sounds, Everything. I knew four things about myself when we started. I knew I needed to transition. I knew I was angry most of the time. I knew that the times I I wasn't angry, I was numb. And I was absolutely convinced that my brain didn't work like anybody else's. And those were the things I knew. And so Aaron had the sometimes unenviable task of introducing me to myself even as I was changing and growing. And we'd explore these new facets of what it meant to be me, what it means to be masculine. That was a big one. And really take me from a space of my body is this place to move my brain around into living in that space. Mm -hmm. And what did you learn about what it means to be masculine. Oh, so much. Because that's such an interesting and complex idea. It is. I actually did some research because that's that's just who I am, I research. And I asked 
pretty much every male friend that I had, you know, what does it mean to you to be masculine? And where did you learn that? And the overwhelming answer was, I have no clue. <laughs> um, I would second that. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't have any advice for you. Um, but really where I got it from a lot was, you know, movies and television, right? Hollywood portrays this, this very specific example of, of what it means to be masculine. And for me, that kind of alternated in, into several different places. Um, I'm a big giant geek and I will own that happily. And so you have that culture and what, what it means to be masculine in that culture. Yeah, that is true. I, I hadn't thought about that for a while, that it's easier to be a masculine geek. Mm -hmm. I think feminine uh, woman geek, they catch a lot more oh, yeah. negativity from their tribe. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But then you also have, you know, the, the, I was raised by a Southern woman. You know, my grandmother was from Texas. And so, you know, you have all the, the kit that comes with that. And then I like to fix things. So then you have all of that. And I would, I would kind of rotate between these different cultures and genres of masculinity and and eventually one day i was just like i i, I don't fit in any of these pegs I, I don't fit in any of these spaces and so aaron and i worked a lot surrounding like what does it really mean to be masculine to me and the only example that i could really give was my dad uh, my grandfather um, he was the only father i ever knew so i call him dad my dad is kind and he's hardworking and he fixes things and he would give you the shirt off his back if you needed it. But he's also gentle and quiet. And he paints and he loves his cats and he does these things that aren't what Hollywood would say is masculine. But the one thing that he does more than absolutely anything else is he takes care of the people that he loves. Mm. And to me, that is what being a man is about. Mm. That's what masculinity is. It's, it's not being muscle-bound. It's not, you know, any of these other things. It's caring for people and letting yourself be cared for, which is the hard part more than anything. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. I really love that definition. Sure, like what were some of the crux moments in your 15-year therapy together? Some of the most difficult times with Aaron, the most profound moments, the most hopeless times, funniest, most healing times. Are there some memories that stand out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll start on a lighter note. So we were talking. I don't remember about what. And it's unimportant, really, but she swore. And, I mean, she's human, she does swear, but not nearly as much as I do. And I I always find it amusing when she does, because she does so, so infrequently. And I looked at her and I said, you know, it's actually kind of hot when you swear and talk about science. <laughs> and she looked at me and, and without missing a beat, she goes, oh, fucking periodic table. <laughs> and grinned at me and I just lost it. I, I was sitting laughing and we were both laughing so hard. I'm pretty sure there were tears streaming down my face. It was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and we actually laugh a lot in our time together, which is great. I think that... I mean, what a way to build connection and trust and community laughter. Yeah. 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 So one of them that comes to mind that I... I think is like both really profound and it always makes me chuckle is so um, when Sherlock would feel particularly uh, exposed or vulnerable in therapy, uh, when he would open up and sort of talk about something tough or, or be a little bit softer, um, he would often then kind of act out <laughs> afterwards. 
And so, and, and in true fashion, he's like, we talk a lot about rage with him, but he's also just like one of the most like darling people you'll ever meet. And so he would leave my therapy session and walk out sort of through the, um, you know, catacombs of, of the student clinic and walk past the front uh, desk where the clinic assistants were working. And they didn't know, you know, it's just people walking by. They didn't know who he was. And, and many, several times, <laughs> and one time in particular, he didn't know I could see him, but I was like kind of coming out behind him. I see him walk up and they're fussing around. The printer's broken and the paper's jammed and the toner's, something's wrong. And he comes in full of, you know, comfort. He's like, oh, here's a place I can feel competent. <laughs> and he goes in <laughs> and fixes the printer for them, takes over. He's like, oh, don't worry, I, girls, I know how to do this. <laughs> you know, and here's my like tough man coming out mm-hmm. and he, you know, fixes everything, gets the printer going and then, you know, moves on and moves on with his day and leaves. And I'm like, bye. He's like, bye, ladies. And, you know, please. <laughs> and, and he did this enough times that the other clinic assistants one day, you know, mentioned, they're like, oh, my God, I love our maintenance man. <laughs> you guys, he's not our maintenance man. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, so one of his, we joke, one of his acting out ways is to be this like super helpful (laughs) maintenance man he would like see somebody pull you know pulled over on the side of the road with a flat tire and pull over and change their tire for them like Mm. that's the style of stuff he'll do especially if he feels kind of bad about himself he'll just sort of you know pop up and and fix things Mm -hmm. um yeah so that's one that comes to mind as as i then had to call him on it and i was like you are no longer allowed to fix the (laughs) because what this is really, you know, what mm-hmm. this is really about, every, you know, it looks great on the surface, but what's really happening here mm-hmm. is you're, you know, trying to put the armor back on and feel really, so at least let's like name that, you know, mm-hmm. that's what it happened. So we kind of have a joke now of like, do you feel like you need to go fix a printer right now? <laughs> it's like, yes. Oh. One of the most times that I felt hopeless came recently. Aaron had gone out on maternity leave, and that was expected. So um, I, I started seeing one of her coworkers. I guess is the word I'll use. I can't think of the word I actually want to use, but <laughs> we'll go with coworkers who I'd seen before. Uh, she's fantastic and she's great for supporting me while, while Aaron is, has to be out of office. And then several weeks in, Aaron sent out an email that she was taking an extended leave. And I knew something was wrong. I'd had postpartum depression with other kids, but I got a very severe uh, bout of that this time, and I couldn't come back to work. I was not in a state to be able to do that at all. and ended up being gone for six months. I suspected that she was having postpartum difficulties but of course you know i i couldn't say for sure and i also want to say like logically my logical brain understands and is completely aware of the nature of the relationship between aaron and i i understand this as a professional relationship but the emotional part of me was concerned about someone i care about Something was wrong, and I knew it, and I couldn't do anything to help her. And I felt lost. Like, yes, it's great to to have someone as a backup, but I've been working with Erin for so long that the potential of her maybe not even coming back, I, I immediately was like I was lost at sea. For a little bit, I really, really struggled with that. He was one of the cases where I just felt like, oh, fuck, I really need to be there, and I just can't. Um, And that was just felt so bad on so many levels of feeling so much pressure to come back and also knowing there's no way that I should be working right now. Then it occurred to me that Aaron has helped me develop a compass and taught me how to use it. And so I didn't have to be lost. 
And not only did she give me this compass and teach me how to use it, she's given me a navigator to help along the way. So then I was okay. I knew I was going to be okay. But I was so worried about her. And battling with this line of, you know, she's my therapist, and I I don't usually use that word. It's not my favorite word given my past. Our sessions have always been errand time. But also this person who's helped me through so much over the last years and, and not be able to reciprocate and help her in any way was really, really hard. He's got such a, um, I think, like an idealized transference to me where he just thinks I'm, everything I do is fine and great and, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm like fully letting you down right now. <laughs> like you are in the midst of dealing with some really rough trauma stuff that you really need me for and I, I am not there. We, we actually had a phone call meeting and it occurred to me that the one thing I could do for her was to make sure that she wasn't, wasn't worrying about me at all. And my thinking of that comes from her being just so cognizant and aware of how I'm feeling about things. And I remember telling her, I'm going to be okay. You have given me the tools I need. I have this other person here to support me as well. I'm going to be okay. And every time my life has fallen apart, you have magically been there, even if we haven't seen each other. It's going to be okay. And if I need you, I know that somehow, some way, you're going to be there. I don't doubt it. Do you know about transference? Do you know what that means? I do. Yeah. I wonder if we might explore the transference. So that's this idea that when you work very deeply with a therapist over a period of time, your therapist can become like a mother, like a sister, like a coach, like a grandmother, like a, you know, taking kind of the place, the healing role of someone earlier in your life. And I mean, do you have a sense with Aaron, like what sort of transference role she took on for you? Probably several. In some ways, I think... Or even romantic transference is a really common thing, too, with a therapist. There was some of that, I would say. So when we first met and then started our work together, my sexual prowess was very much a big part of my life. It was, it was how I felt masculine. And this is going to sound so cocky now. But there were very few women in my life that I hadn't slept with if I wanted to. Um, Actually, I can narrow it down to one. And so this, this concept of I can have a relationship with a woman that wasn't sexual, that wasn't based on sex, was completely new to me. I think that that was there. And I think she also in some ways... There was there was a mother aspect because I mean my mother was so young and now I can see you know, from a logical place of course that she did the best that she could but there were a lot of wounds there my mother and I didn't have a real relationship until I was much older and in some ways I think she took the place of my father too. My father found out that my mother was pregnant and bailed until I was 18. And then I met him for 15 minutes at a Burger King, 10 minutes from my house. And um, we're still working through some of that, to be honest with you, Um, which is made more challenging by the fact that they're now married, my mother and, and biological father. And so I think in some ways, like she's stepped into that role and kind of had to deal with some anger there too Mm -hmm. what were some of the counter-transference challenges for you yeah because i'm guessing 
Because Sherlock had a lot of early childhood pain and attachment stuff and um, identity confusion and just a lot of internal and attachment pain. And you working with him for so long, I would think you know, a lot of transference coming your way, thus a lot of counter-transference mm-hmm. you to work with. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think in the beginning it was a lot of feeling really intimidated and feeling like I really needed to kind of like you know there was a lot of a lot of strange power dynamic between the two of us and um i think in many ways we've had lots of variations on like parental and child transference um i kind of forget that he and i are close to the same age i think of him sometimes as much younger because of that transference relationship where in a lot of ways i think i've functioned as a parental figure um and and in some ways it's like we um you know i met him right at the beginning of of him growing up as a man. Um, and so there is this sort of parallel of, you know, you go on hormones and it feels a little bit like going through adolescence. Um, and you go through some of that, you know, big emotional swings and suddenly like your sex drive goes through the roof. And, um, so there was a lot of me feeling sort of like I was learning how to raise, raise a teenage boy. (laughs) Uh, and so I think there's a, that's been the biggest one for me has been sort of feeling sometimes like, like a parent. Um, and then also sometimes we've had less now, but certainly in the beginning years, um, more like competition where I feel like I have to sort of, um, prove myself or be, you know, um, hyper competent in a similar way to him. Um, yeah, I think those are two two really big ways that the relationship has kind of played out between the two of us. And I think also there's a real genuine, um, you know, affection and, and, and warmth between the two of us that's developed over the years. I, I, if you had gone back to me on, you know, week three (laughs) of our work together and said, this is going to be somebody you're going to work with for perhaps the rest of your career and has become going to become this super dear person in your life. I would have been like, are you kidding me? (laughs) He hates me. (laughs) But I also think that's one of the, just really beautiful, amazing gifts of our work is we just don't know how it's going to turn out. You know, we read mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. like I'll get, read my evaluation questionnaire on somebody and I'll think, oh boy, how's this going to go? And mm-hmm. then I meet them, really like them. And, you know, maybe they come five times or maybe they're with me for 15 years. And it's just because we never know how it's going to unfold. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say you've learned about yourself as a person and as a therapist through all these hours of sitting down with Sherlock and mm-hmm. going through hard stuff? I think, so I was trained in a pretty um, psychodynamic way with a lot of, um, like I, I was not sort of trained to disclose very much about myself also kind of a preference for me I think to be more kind of hold things close to my chest and over the years I'm I feel like one of the things I've really learned through this um, and honestly through he and I talking over the last you know weeks and months about doing this podcast was um, being a little bit letting myself be a little bit more of a real full human in the room with still having a lot of you know boundaries around the frame of what we're doing and what we're there to work on Plus the experience of me getting so, um, having my own, you know, pretty severe mental illness happen between the, this is one of those therapy relationships where I think I really grew in seeing that I can be less perfect and more a fallible human who sometimes isn't well, um, especially because I think there is so much idealization of, of me and of our work together that it's, it's like, God, that's addictive. And you really want to believe that. And, um, it's actually been really good and freeing for me to realize that, you know, and I know this and I think I, I feel it more kind of internally now that what happens is really this like magic between the two people 
It's not, I'm not putting something in, I'm not putting health inside of him. And he's not coming there and doing that by himself either. But there's something co-created that is pretty magical. And I, I struggle to put words to it, but it feels like there's something something I really love about this work. It feels like getting to participate in a miracle sometimes Mm. where I'm showing up and, you know, there's, you can learn these things and, you know, I know how to do a lot of different techniques and I've been to school forever, but, but a lot of that drops away, especially in long-term depth work like this, where something else is happening right? There's like, we're both showing up to this, you know, what I think of is kind of like a sacred place to do the sacred work together. And it's happening in between us. You know, one of the main themes I talk about on this podcast is that I really believe with all my being that it's the relationship that heals. And I'm curious for you, Sherlock, with this long course of treatment with Aaron did that stand true? And if so, how did the relationship heal? Oh, absolutely. My relationship with Aaron taught me how to have relationships with pretty much everybody else. I've been able to look at what works in my relationship with Aaron and use that as a template for other relationships, including romantic ones. I had actually met my wife before I met Aaron. And That relationship had started as friendship and at one point had become sexual and, and became really based in, in sexuality and, and sex. And I knew I wanted more than that, but I didn't know how to have more than that. And we actually separated for a long time. And, and though we stayed in contact, um, it was it was really intermittent. And as my relationship with Aaron grew and, and evolved over time, I was able to look at that and go, okay, how does this work? Why does this work? What about this is so great? And how can I translate that? Certain relational dynamics um, will play out between the two of us. Um, I mean, like I was talking about the storytelling thing, right? He would, he gets into this sort of performative way. He does that with everybody. It's not just me. Um, But what's different is we get to, there's enough safety and kind of, and something between the two of us that we get to, name it and and be curious about it and wonder about what's happening and kind of laugh at it a little bit. One of the big things that I learned was I can be vulnerable with her, I can trust her, and we communicate really well. And so I was able to take those things and, and bring them into my relationship with my wife when we got back together and have that in a romantic relationship. And that's, that's so huge. But it's not just that. Being able to actually have a relationship with someone and trust them. You know, sometimes it feels like reparenting is part of what's happening, is we're getting to have this. And he's doing it too. It's not just that I'm reparenting him. It's that he's also reparenting his little self. Um, like with, you know, me together. Um, kind of helping. We've talked about sort of thinking back on on, you know, little, little Sherlock, um, and, and kind of trying to like hold him a little bit and give him some of the comfort and, and believe him in ways he wasn't believed. Trust was something that I didn't do. When I was 12, because no one believed me, I actually carved the words, trust no one into my thigh. And it was there for years, and it was so true. I didn't trust anyone. And yeah, I just, I believe there's something that gets, and we can call it the relationship, but I don't think that even quite captures what it is, that there is something that happens. And and I'm not a particularly religious person, but it feels sacred. That's the word I keep wanting to use, that it feels like something happens that that is a little bit outside. It's different. It's not, I mean, yes, I'm showing up as my own, as myself, but we're here with this intention for this to be 
a place of healing and, and really about him. Um, so of course, subtly my own shit plays out, but it's different than any other type of, I mean, this is like such a weird relationship. There's different than anything else you do. Um, anybody else you talk to, no matter how close a friend, like there's something different that happens when you're in this therapeutic relationship with someone. And to have this relationship with Aaron and have her so gently and so carefully build that trust and cultivate it and respect it for so long has been so healing and such a lifesaver. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't imagine where I would be otherwise. I recorded Sherlock first, and then Erin. And when I turned off the recording with Erin, she said, Oh, wait, wait. There was one other thing I really wanted to say. What I meant to say at the end, it's that we heal through love. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) ¶¶ 